This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Fern Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. I'm here today working on some 2020 year-end bookkeeping close-up stuff, final accounting, things like that, basically preparing the 2020 books for distribution to investors and owners and then also getting everything prepped so that my CPA can finalize the 2020 tax returns and get those get those finalized here this month. As you know, when you have investors in a deal or members of an LLC, for example, you have to issue K-1 tax statements. You have to file partnership returns at the state and federal level. And ultimately, that falls on the, a lot of that falls onto the onus of the property manager. So I've, I've done a number of document reviews here, closing documents, bank documents, contracts, leases, things of that sort. So today's agreement that I want to cover is the property management agreement. And, and typically the property manager is going to be the person who's, who's best able to do the initial prep or maybe all the prep for the CPA to file tax returns. So this, is, this kind of work is typically done end of year in December, beginning of year in January, assuming you've got a fiscal year end, it's calendar year end which is what I have always done. Um, I know a lot of companies do it differently, but that's just kind of how I've always done it. So uh, my January is typically pretty busy, um, but that's okay. So I recommend having a property management agreement, even if it's you know quasi-related entity, um, just to make it more professional, set up, the, set up the duties, the rights, responsibilities, separation of risk and liability. So... I do, a, I do a little bit of property management third party. Uh, really, it's only for mobile home parks that I've sold as you know, either a courtesy to the people that I've sold to for a transition or perhaps as an inducement to the sale, depending on the case-by-case basis. Um, but typically, my property management is for entities that I also control where I'm the promoter or syndicator, but then I have a related entity, and I'm not going to get into tax status, but that entity... For in my case, is is an LLC, but is taxed as an S corp. I get asked quite often, should our LLCs be taxed as a partnership or an S corp? In general, I prefer the partnership taxation for the flow through benefits. There, there are some benefits of an S corp if you have certain amounts of W two employees and wages. So all of my property owning LLCs, they don't have any employees. The only true W two employees uh, come from my management company. So it's taxed as an S-corp. There are, depending on your personal situation, there are some potential tax carve-outs, some of which were in the 2017 Trump tax cuts. Uh, so anyway, that's a question for another day. But today I, I just want to hit high level. What are the terms and provisions that you should have within your property management agreement? So first off, I think pretty obvious, you know, the effective date, the names of the parties, the name of the, the name and legal description of the property that this is going to pertain to. You've got a bunch of recitals, and I'm not going to go through boilerplate, and I'm not going to go through at the end all the boilerplate terms like severability, complete agreement, you know, definite, you know, gender neutral, all that kind of stuff. I've covered that kind of stuff in other podcasts. So the key terms here, you know, commencement and termination dates, authority of the subsidiaries. Typically, if it's a 
syndication structure, you'll have investors LLC and land LLC and homes LLC. So the property management agreement is basically signed by the land LLC and the homes and the homes LLC, and uh, not the investors LLC. Is just kind of as a matter of course. That's a little subjective, but that's how I do it. So you have to make sure the subsidiaries have approval of the investors. And then you want to just define that the status of the part, the property manager. So it's the subsidiaries and the property manager do not intend to form a joint venture partnership or similar relationship. Even though, in this case, this, this document I'm looking at, an entity controlled by me is the manager of the investors group, which owns, is a sole member of Landon Homes. And then an entity controlled and owned 100% by me is the property manager. But they're different entities, so I'm signing on both sides of the document. But on the one side, I'm the unilateral member. On the other side, I've been authorized in my private place memorandum in my operating agreement by my investors, of which I am the primary investor. But for legal liability purposes, in the event that the property manager steps on a landmine, I don't want the land LLC or the homes LLC or the investors LLC to have the same level of exposure. So I still do this like it's a third-party transaction. So generally, what do you want in your management agreement? You need to set forth what are the property manager's duties, rights, responsibilities, limitations. I mean, limitations like maybe they can deliver leases, sign leases, but maybe they can't approve the tenants. But most likely, they probably have right to approve the tenants with the supervision and guidance of the ownership or perhaps just the reporting to the ownership. And you want to set forth in general the status of the independent contractor, the status that the property manager is an independent contractor of the ownership group but then also that the property manager will be the one responsible for retaining either employees or independent contractors. So my property management company, it's called Augustum Property Management. I have several W-2 employees that are employed by that entity, but I also have a number of 1099 employees. I don't know, probably 100, I'm doing it today actually, probably have 100 1099s going out the door today. And those 1099s are, some of those are to, you know, quasi-related contractors that we have a regular uh, working relationship with and i'll go over the what makes them a a w-2 employee versus a 1099 contractor in another podcast um but but then there's some 1099s that are just obvious and those are guys like like my concrete guy he's a professional company he's got his own website got his name on his truck Uh, he has his own workers comp insurance his own general liability insurance he works for me but he works for 100 other people that guy is definitely an independent contractor. He gets a 1099. You're supposed to give 1099. I believe the limit's $600. If you pay more than $600 in a calendar year to one vendor, you have to give a 1099, which basically means you have to get a W-9 from them. You have to get, you have to pay, um, send, you have to not take tax on their paycheck, but you need to send them a 1099 in the year. If you don't have their information, you need to withhold, I think it's 20% of their compensation in order to provide to the IRS for taxes. Um, anyway, it's important to make sure that the the property manager is the one that's responsible for hiring those people. And you want to make sure that it's written that the property manager has to comply with all laws, comply with all mortgages, with FHA, other matters, things like that. A key duty of the property manager that will also be involved, have involvement of the ownership group is a budget and a marketing plan. And you could have something in there like the property manager shall, shall submit by December 15th of the year to the subsidiaries for an approval of an operating plan for the general operation of the property. You want to have things in here about leasing, like this is common sense, right? The property manager shall use commercially commercially reasonable efforts to obtain tenants, commercially reasonable efforts to collect rent, other income, shall be responsible for repairs and maintenance, 
And then, you know, you may have a limit on repairs and maintenance or capital expenditures. So, for example, anything less than $2,000, the property manager does. But the property manager does not have the authority to go, you know, repave the streets for $200,000. But maybe has, has authority to get bids and repave the streets if it's in the operating budget from the previous, uh, you know, previously submitted and approved. So if the, the plan is to redo the streets this year and we got a budget of fifty grand, if fifty grand is what it's going to cost, then the manager just does it. But if it's a sixty, maybe needs to, he or she needs to come back and get more authority. Typically, the property manager will enter into service contracts, purchase supplies, purchase equipment. Might be the person that pays the property taxes and the mortgage. Um, sometimes the ownership group handles some of that stuff, depending on who wants to be responsible for property tax appeals, for example, uh, and just other compliance-related issues. Typically, the property manager will have authorization to handle all tenant relations. There'll be miscellaneous, there'll be other miscellaneous duties, miscellaneous rights, and this can be case by case. Um, typically, the property manager will will hold make sure that the property insurance is covered, but also the property management entity should hold workers' comp insurance and general liability insurance. That's one of the benefit of one of the benefits of having a property manager, is that. The ownership group doesn't have to own and hold its own workers' comp if all payments to vendors are paid out of the management entity. And workers' comp, you know, it's basically the, the premium is based on, one, a, a base charge, and then two, uh, dollars of wage paid, and then three, job classification of said hourly wage. So if I've got a maintenance man making 30,000 a year and I've got a secretary making 30,000 a year the maintenance man is going to have a much higher workers comp allocation because his job is more risky than and more likely to end up in a claim than the secretary's job but you still pay a premium for your secretary um it's it's pretty small there are certain areas like roofing chainsaw work uh, driving heavy equipment general contractor work that gets more and more expensive and you need to check with your insurance carrier on that before you have those sort of duties being performed. You'll also want to make sure that the property manager is either A, getting waivers from vendors or B, making sure that the vendors have their own workers comp or general liability. Uh, practically, a lot of vendors don't, so that's where you want to make sure if, if, that they're covered under your own workers comp and GL. You need to you know, pay them and monitor them accordingly. Um, Another key duty of the property manager is, is basically your financial reporting, your record keeping, you know, keeping a book of accounts, you know, financial reports, I would say no less than quarterly, and then maintaining all summary su- supporting documentation, receipts, you know, payroll st- you know, strips, everything like that. Um, and just really being having a, the, the investors and the owner having a right to audit the books. So there should be, you know, documents. Like I always have my private placement memorandum in my operating agreement and all my reports kept in hard copy at headquarters. So in, in theory, my investors could show up and say, hey, I want to I want to audit the books, or I want to look at the books. Well, it's there. And frankly, no one's ever asked to show up at headquarters and see the hard copy, uh, but they could. And typically, there's some sort of right to audit. And if it's, if the audit, typically the audit would be at the owner's expense, unless there's a certain threshold, say 2% or 5% of error that is found, and then it would become the property manager's expense. And you need to, the next thing is you, the property manager should keep bank accounts, right? I mean, an operating account for sure. Sometimes you'll have different investors' accounts. Sometimes you'll have a security deposit account, depending on your state law, if security deposit funds can or cannot be commingled. 
you should say who has access to the account. I mean, typically, my management company has access. Even if, even my third-party management, I, we set up online banking that the client and uh, and I and then my my financial team, my accountant, my secretary, my dad can all have access online. Dad and I can sign checks. We can make deposits, and we're doing it straight out of the owner's account. And obviously, we have a fiduciary role there, so we're not like we can't just steal the money, right? But we don't have to instead just spend everything out of our own money and then get reimbursed. Now we do that a lot for the for the workers that do not have the workers' comp or general liability. We pay it out of my management company because it's protected, and then I seek reimbursement from. And then we and I just frankly have rights to reimburse and just do it. Um, my secretary will spend pay a hundred dollars for John Smith out of property management, and then be reimbursed by the owner's account hundred dollars. And that's that act, that's written in here somewhere authorization to reimbursement. And you know the manager has right to payment of expenses. Um, you know, there's generally a provision here about not commingling uh, accounts or and or accounts that the property manager is not reimbursed before. You know, certain things like fraud, gross negligence, perhaps any other insurance purchased by the property manager for the benefit of itself, and then you know litigation against the property manager may or may not be covered by the owner. So that's important to have in there. What fees can the what expenses is the property manager entitled to reimbursement for? And then you've got the regular fees, right? That are you know the management fee. Um, is it you know five percent? Is it uh, you know a salary fee? Is it you know an asset management fee? That's probably not typically a property management fee. Um, are there bonuses? I think it's I think it's often helpful to have the bonuses be uh, attributable to success of the park. So, for example, collections or NOI or new infill. I mean, a new infill project, every home you bring in is, is all you know, adds a lot of value to the asset, which is a lot of value for the ownership. So it's often advantageous to tie up and link the manager's compensation with the manager's performance of helping with those things. Other important provisions, you know, termination or cancellation rights. Uh, a lot of lenders, like your Fannie Mae, your Freddie Mac lenders, they're going to require that the owner can terminate upon 30 days written notice with or without cause because the lender may have to if the loan goes bad the lender is going to jump in and they're going to want the right to terminate the property manager so typically the property typically the owner has stronger rights to terminate the property manager sometimes they can terminate for 30 days but a lot of times it's longer you get look you can't terminate for at least the first year otherwise you could leave the owner in a lurch um, but you, that should be spelled out here it's negotiable and then sometimes there'll be provisions on if, if there is a termination that the property manager has some additional duties for like a final accounting and a transition and typically the property manager would get additional compensation for that because that's that's pretty onerous um that needs to be spelled out in here um you should identify things like conflicts of interest uh, and the property manager should not be you know like if my brother's a plumber I shouldn't be able to hire my brother as the plumber in our parks, right? Well, unless it's disclosed or unless it's competitive bid. Uh, this is designed to not have you know insider dealing. Uh, but typically there is a an allowable conflict, you know, whereby I could be the property manager for 10 projects in the same city. And that's pretty much the norm. Um, now, in mobile home park world, that's not really that norm that much because... Frankly, I don't know many people that own 10 mobile home parks in the same city. But in general, like if I'm managing an office building, the fact that I manage 50 office buildings is probably actually good for each client because I have more access to information. I have more economies of scale. 
you know, from even things like getting cost segregation studies from plumbers, from vendors, from HVAC guys. Um, I have lots of personnel that I can you know, rotate as needed for triage. But that kind of conflict language should be in here. You've got your typical stuff like where do you send notices, there's arbitration, assignment. I mean, it's pretty, pretty rare for the property manager to be able to assign the contract to just anybody without permission of the owner. But the owner may sell the property and possibly assign the rights um, subject to termination. You've got your little boilerplate stuff, right? Governing law, venue, headings, representations. Typically, there's a mutual, a mutual indemnification by both parties. Um, those are important. You got to make sure you get your signature blocks right, your authorizations right. But ultimately, you know, the big ones again are: what are the fees? What are the rights? What are the duties? What are the limitations? Who's paying for what insurance or employees? Things of that sort. Um, very important to have a good property management agreement. Um, Typically, if you're doing a deal for an, for a bigger investment or for a syndication, this, at least in this in a form version, would be attached as an exhibit to the private placement memorandum. Um, in particular, if the property management company is related to the promoter, which, which frankly, in the mobile home park space, probably is on most cases, because there are not very many property management companies that are MHP focused. I mean, there, I can think of a couple, maybe a handful in the industry, but most people uh, tend to have a self-management structure as opposed to, you know, office and retail. You know, there are entire large companies that manage, you know, CBRE, um, Cushman Wakefield, some of those companies, like, you know, they'll have entire divisions that all they do is property management. But in the MHP space, I've never hired a third-party property manager. I'd be, frankly, kind of afraid to do so um, unless they were they were more local than me. But uh, still, I'd want a property management agreement with them or with my own entity and for the benefit of the investment group as well. So anyway, lots of uh, minutiae as it pertains to property management agreements, but certainly an important document. Till next time, have fun. God bless. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.